this is gonna be the best book you ever read. Like, this is your new favorite book. Off the internet, man. Oh, I need to go be an introvert. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Books in the City. I'm Libby. I'm Becky. I'm Emily. I'm Kayla. And we are your four book podcast friends here to talk about books on our podcast. Yay. <laughs> Welcome. So quick book club announcement before we get started. Our fan club book club pick this month is Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And we will be having a Zoom discussion of it this Sunday, August 29th. Check out the Patreon app for more details on that and head to our website, booksinthecitypod.com to get more information about how you can join in on the fan club book club. Fun. Woohoo. And well, not speaking of that at all, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we just wanted to give a little shout out to our bookish BFF and illustrator, Nicole who has recently, and you've heard us talk about this before, but she's recently opened a really cool store online called Historia Press. Um, and it is these really amazing drawings that she's done by hand of tons of Greek gods and goddesses. And you can get totes and mugs and t-shirts. And Emily has like a full shopping cart. And I'm sure since the last time we one talked, of it's everything. gotten fuller. <laughs> yeah, in my cart. In each of my preferred goddesses. So even if you're not like, if you don't know that much about Greek gods and goddesses, it's like a really cool design. Like you can definitely make a really cute outfit with some of these t-shirts for sure. So make sure you go to Historia Press on Instagram and I believe it's historiapress.com to check all that out. Oh, and take the Greek god. And you can and take their quiz yeah. to learn more. And then get the merch with that one like I did. I got an Athena mug because apparently I'm Athena. I love it. Don't know what that means, though. But it's pretty. <laughs> it is, for sure. So check Astoria it out. Astoria Press. Do we talk about books? No. no I think you should tell Fuck. us what the fish want to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is there a fish in your room? For new listeners, we have a fishbowl and the fish talk to us. And Emily's the keeper of the fish. The keeper of the fish and bowls. Which Greek god or goddess keeps the fish? Oh, I wish I had a clever answer, but I can't. Poseidon. <laughs> Probably. Uh-huh. All righty, then. The fish want to know, what's making you happy this week? The Aww. fish might have sampled from... Yeah, I was going to say books to gaze. Books to gaze or... Pop culture happy hour, potentially That's other so pawns cute. for this question. I feel unprepared. Hmm. No, I shouldn't have to think about <laughs> happiness this much. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of things that I'm excited for in life, which makes me happy, which at this point already happened. Spoiler alert to our listeners. We are recording far in, in the past for you, but I am. As the girls know, very excited about going to the Jazz Age lawn party and all of my outfit things have arrived and I'm very happy about it. Um, but also, which I mentioned on the last episode, I'm taking a wine tasting course online and 
I got a whole set of like specific wine tasting glasses that are like you you're supposed to get specifically for test like tasting and like an analyzing wine. So I'm excited to learn more about wine and all the different, you know, sensory things involved in it. Um, I this week did like a little book unhaul where I went through my shelves and I picked out some books that, you know, either I like bought at a signing because I felt pressured, but really didn't have an interest in or like have had on my shelf, you know, for the past four years and just don't see myself picking it up again. Um, So I got rid of a small stack. I'm like, I took a bunch of them to the little free library this week. And that's always just like a nice, like teeny tiny weight off my shoulders. You know, I still have like a million unread books and way too many but I don't know I clearing some out and then kind of like shifting books around the bookcase and reorganizing things but always makes me feel happy and better I have like a few to choose from which I guess is a good thing yeah um okay I'm gonna go with the one that's like kind of sappy because I had like an emo moment thinking about this the other day but like Obviously, I'm very close with my mom and we spend a lot of time together all the time. But during the summer, we'll literally go to the beach for like nine hours and just sit there and read all day. Or like now we've been sitting by her pool on days we can't get to the beach. And it's just like it makes me so happy. And it's just like very like special quality time that I think as like as I'm getting older, I'm like, I'm so lucky that I have this. And yeah, it makes me happy just sit in silence with her and read. Mine is not that emotionally weighted. Um, <laughs> I mean, we bought, it have to be. We bought these mugs on the retreat that <laughs> prior to this week were too small for my coffee consumption, but I've been recommended to cut back on my caffeine <laughs> intake. So now the tiny mug is the preferred size. So I like the color it is. It's mint green. It makes me happy. Um, should we talk about books? Yes. Libby, what did you read? Am I up first? Oh, okay. You sure are. I actually didn't know, so this is exciting. And I did write notes this week. I read a book called The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. Uh... This came out in 1927. Yes, oh, the 20s. It's an old one. Yeah, it came out in the 20s. He wrote it in his early 20s, which is insane to me. So yeah, throwing it way back for this one. Um, but I have kind of a backstory. So I don't really know if I've mentioned it on the pod, but I feel like on my bookstagram page, I've been talking about how I just like feel like I haven't been reading a ton this summer I think this is like normal for the kind of just like summer slump for me at least where I'm like really on a roll in the spring and then it just slows down because summer and I'm doing other things and whatever but today as we've mentioned we're doing like a marathon record and I was worried that I wouldn't have enough books um, to talk about for the marathon record so this afternoon I had work off and I was looking for just like a tiny little slim book that I could maybe read in an afternoon to talk about and that was this and 
it's what I read this afternoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it's super. So it's technically a novel, but it's like 110 ish pages. And I almost wonder I'm going to research after. But I wonder if that's if they didn't have like a no- novella designation back then or why. I don't know. It's it, that was interesting to me. So yeah, like I said, very short. You can read it in an afternoon. But I absolutely fully loved this book so much. And I was like immediately invested. It made me cry. I was underlining passages left and right and like immediately felt really connected to the characters in the book. So yeah, all around like very impressive for such a short amount of uh, pages. So basically... The book is about a bridge. It's called The Bridge of San Luis Rey. And it connects Lima to Cusco um, in Peru. And the book is set in 1714. So it's like peak Spanish Inquisition and also Spanish occupation of Peru. And that was relevant information that I want to shout out the forward for providing to me because I like didn't really know what was going on in South America in the 1714s um, because that just wasn't something I remembered. So the very first line of this book shows us the that the bridge collapsed and there's no reason they called it the finest bridge in all of Peru because it was so dependable and it had been there for so long and whatever. And one day it just snaps and five people happen to be crossing the bridge at the time. And so they fall into the gulf and die. So that's like the first page of this book. So this man named Brother Juniper is, he's a Spanish missionary and he happens to just like glance up at the bridge at this exact moment. And like, it's this is dark I shouldn't laugh but like as he's literally watching these five bodies fall he like makes this snap decision that he's going to find out everything about these five people as kind of like a test or testament to God and like God's master plan eventually it becomes clear that he like comes to this decision um, because he's having some serious like theological doubts himself and this is at a time when like people are just murdered you know for theological doubts so anyway yeah this is all immediately like in the first five pages of this book so then after that we're taken through kind of biographical details that brother juniper is able to gather about these five people he says he he like commits the next six years of his life like interviewing everyone who's ever interacted with all five of these people basically he kind of he's trying to get details about their lives and get their backstories and what led them to this exact moment on the bridge and like ultimately to their deaths i'm not really going to get into the characters individually but i love them all and I already kind of said this, but I felt like immediately connected to them. And I'm just like really impressed that that happened with, you know, it was just like super brief, um, impactful introductions to these people. Yeah, this book was so good. I'm so pleasantly surprised. The story gets into 
like religion, philosophy, meaning of life type stuff, just casual, but it almost like some of the issues that it raised for me and I think reasons why I'll be thinking about this for a really long time is it almost felt like ahead of its time because it was sort of or at least when I was reading it I kind of got this sense of like pushing back against people's like impulse to add meaning to suffering or like to trauma I think like that's even relevant today but there's this kind of like notion of like you know, I went through this trauma and I'm stronger for it. And I think that's great. And it's great to like feel empowered through suffering that you've gone through. But at the same time, I don't know, like, I think it's also important to not like attribute too much meaning to these negative, like sometimes senseless things that can happen to people. And it kind of like walks the fine line between like, you know, adding meaning to pain versus just like working through pain in a different way I guess um I don't know I'm I I agree yeah I I know I was rambling but I'm glad you no it makes sense like I think sometimes when people tell somebody who's been through something really intense like oh you're so strong it's like well let me yeah exactly so in that sense I feel like especially in the 20s when you have these like young men writers like I don't know coming back from war or little did they know like they were going to be going to war it's just it was interesting the time that this um particular book came out of is interesting to me parts of the book also gave me (laughs) i have in my notes good place vibes um oh really yeah it's so at one point like brother juniper is basically just having this whole like reckoning with like why did these five people die he gets their details and he's like were they bad people? Were they good people? Was it part of God's mm. plan? And at one point he's literally got like a little chart and he's tallying up like piety and uh, assigning oh. points. And then like, was Ted Danson goodness. There? <laughs> and it turns out he is Ted Danson. <laughs> but I, I felt like, you know, it's not, it's not the good place. It's not like funny, whatever. But it was just that same kind of along those lines of like, there's no such thing as a good person. Yeah, and and like I don't know, that really made clear the idea of like what it means to be a human and everyone exists in this complex gray area and trying to reckon that with like both good and bad things happening to you at any point and like why and what that means for the human experience and yeah, I don't know. And this is all in like a hundred pages and I'm like having thoughts about like, what are we all doing here? And like, what does it mean? And it's, it was, that sounds it so was good. so good. It's so short. It's an easy read. Like the language is super accessible. Also some interesting, I don't know, again, like the 1700s in Peru is just not something I feel like I learned too much about and like Spanish occupation in these countries and I would say that's less a part of it, but kind of the Spanish occupiers butting up against indigenous Peruvian people and how faith played such a huge part in that too. And yeah, it was so good. I know I'm going to be thinking about it for a really long time. I think definitely I'll want to reread this like more than once probably. And I'm pretty sure Thornton uh, won the Pulitzer (laughs) for this, which... I would just like to co-sign. Oh. I think that was deserved. 
Good job to the Pulitzer Committee. Um, but yeah, I give it five five stars. Sounded like it by the, by your description. Yeah, yeah, huge fan and like so pleasantly surprised. I love when uh, something's just really good, <laughs> you know. Um, what was that called? That is the Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. Um, and he's a playwright too. I don't know if that's like well known, but I think he's most known maybe for his plays. Um, so it was kind of interesting too to to read a novel versus a play of his. But anyway, yeah, Becky, what did you read? Okay, so I read Falling by T.J. Newman. Um, it came out in July of 2021. Huge, huge content warning for this book. It's traumatizing. It opens with a very gruesome plane crash scene, and it's just, like, very dark throughout. So if you're afraid of flying, just skip it. And also skip my description. Like, go ahead and check the show notes. Like, Whoa. it's just not going to be good. And also, before I continue, I do want to say I have very mixed feelings about this book. There's a solid amount. I mean, I wouldn't say maybe not a solid amount, but there's like a big important piece to this book that rubbed me the wrong way. And I kind of want to talk about this in my description. It was definitely a book that I couldn't put down. And by put down, I mean, stop listening to because I was listening to it on audiobook. And I needed to know what happened. But like, there were things that were making me cringe a lot. Um, and some choices that the author made that I wish she didn't. Normally, I would just not not talk about a book like this that I had conflicting feelings about, but I think it's something that like is worth discussing. So this book is also the one that Riley Sager mentioned when we interviewed him um, that he was really excited about. It's written by a former flight attendant. So that is definitely interesting. And I saw a review of this book by another flight attendant who was very like, happy and excited about like how accurately the pilots and flight attendants and just like all of the people involved in the flight were portrayed like they wrote oh, interesting yeah they wrote that they've read other books that take place on planes where like the flight attendants and pilots were like really stereotypical and they didn't like it but in this one it was like spot on which makes sense because the author is a former flight attendant so, on to the plot. This is a book about a pilot named Bill Hoffman. He's a father, kind of a family man. He's also been flying for years and years. And he gets a call that he needs to fill in on this flight from Los Angeles to, to New York last minute. And he accepts because, I don't know, I guess that's just what you do to stay in the boss's good graces. His kid had, his son had a... um like little league game and his wife was like all upset with him for taking this you know flight when he should have been home watching his kid play little league and so as he's leaving to head to the airport and you know he just recently had like a little bit of an argument with his wife the cable guy comes to fix the wi-fi his wife is attending to that they say their goodbyes kind of rushed um and he's on his way and so he leaves the house and you're in the house with the wife the wife turns around and the cable guy is holding a gun to her. Mm. And she's like, oh my gosh. And she's like, you can have anything you want. Just don't hurt my kids. So she's literally like holding their infant baby and their 10 year old is like running around outside and she's like standing there like, what do I do? And then you flash to 
Bill and he's going through his normal procedure at the airport. He's getting the plane ready. He's doing all the checks and all the things. This is where you meet all of the different flight attendants. And these, the flight attendants, specifically two of them are like such great characters. But I'm not going to get too deep into them. So Bill is in the air. He's like, he's taken off. And he's wondering why his wife didn't return his like text. And he always calls right before he takes off to like, say he made it to the airport and then he's about to take off, you know, the I love yous and all of that. And she didn't answer and she didn't answer the texts or never sent a text that said like, sorry, I was doing X, Y, Z, whatever. And so he's like, why is this happening? Suddenly he's in the air and he gets a FaceTime call from his wife. And in the FaceTime call, his wife and kids are wearing suicide bomb vests Oh. And the cable guy is there and he's holding a detonator. Basically, the cable guy says, you either follow the instructions I give you and crash the plane or I will blow up your family. Oh. So without saying much more about the plot, the rest of the book is a wild ride. And I, the whole crew like bands together, tries to figure out a way to put a stop to both situations, the blowing up of the family and the plash, the plashing, the crashing <laughs> of the plane. It... I was so anxious. I was seriously like I had to take breaks because it was like putting me so on edge. I desperately needed to know whether the plane was going to land, whether the family was going to make it out. Like I if I was physically reading this, it would have been like a one night sit down and read it through. Needless to say, the writing and the pace and all of that is like so you're on the edge of your seat. You're on the edge of your like anxiety. It was like very nerve-wracking definition of a nail-biter. So you're probably wondering, okay, so what did you not like about it? And I just want to like kind of like insert a little light spoiler alert here because I can't really say what I feel without giving a little bit away. I'm going to try and do it without spoiling fully. But the thing that made me feel weird about this is the motive that the author gave the bad guys. And basically, she made the bad guys be Kurdish. And this is kind of the spoiler part, that they were on this, like, revenge mission against America in general for being oblivious to the horrors that their people and these specific people's family experience in Kur Kurdistan because of Ronald Reagan and his, like, decisions. Like, basically, they were like oh, because your family just continued having like your Little League games and drinking your smoothies while my family, my entire family died in, you know, the Middle East. And I just like, I feel like there's enough of a stereotype and like profiling that goes on specifically at the airport for Middle Eastern people. We don't need any additional things in media, especially written by a white woman that oh. put these people into these stere like we do not need to stereotype middle eastern people anymore like and it and as soon as they said that i was like you couldn't have just like written the bad guys to be anything else this is so interesting because before we recorded i said to becky i just read a book with the same exact plot called hostage and when riley sager mentioned the plot of this book on the interview i was like oh i think i have it because i was thinking of hostage but in this book it's the same thing, but it's like the flight attendant, her daughter's going to be killed if she doesn't like help crash the plane. The, I'm not going to say like the motive behind the bad guys, but it was not 
like because they were Middle Eastern, but she I thought the author did a good job of talking about like the unfair racism Middle Eastern people face in airports and on airplanes. Mm. Interesting. Well, I'll say that this author definitely attempted to make the make it be like the bad guys are also the good guys like blurred line kind of thing like misunderstood like they didn't they were misdirecting maybe their anger but it to mm. me it didn't read and I know a lot of other reviewers felt the same way about how this author you know went about this and it's kind of disappointing to me because the rest of the book was so good and like even with that, I still couldn't put it down. I still didn't want to like stop listening. And maybe that's a flaw that I need to examine in myself. But like, I do think that if you're looking for a thriller, that's like really going to put you on the edge of your seat. And you're really going to be like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Like, I haven't experienced that with a th- like, and to be fair, I don't read that many thrillers. But like, in the last like two years of reading I don't think I've read a thriller that's put me that much like I could not stop I was listening to it at my desk and there was a point where I wasn't even working anymore I was just sitting there just listening because I was like I have to I just have to focus on what's happening in this book so it's good it's just like that part I just really wish she made a different decision because it just like it made me feel weird and I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe it's maybe maybe I just misunderstood her meaning but to me it felt odd I'm not going to continue to harp on it. Um, it was picked. It's going to be made into a movie. And I do oh. definitely want to watch it because I was telling Caleb before we recorded, I loved the movie Flight Plan with Jodie Foster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when it came like flight, you know, kind of thriller action movies are like, I don't maybe it's my genre. I don't know. But it was like, I loved that movie. So I, I have high hopes for this. I just pray that the movie makers make a different decision about the bad guys. Because I do not think we need another movie that makes Middle Eastern people bad guys in, in general or in relation to planes. Specifically. That's just my opinion. I don't know how you guys feel. I don't think I have a rating for this. Maybe just like a straight 2.5 down the middle. And the reason I say that is because I just cannot reconcile how I feel about like the fact that the book was just like a, you know, a good book in on paper and the fact that it's a book that like I couldn't put down. But this problematic point just like bugged me so much that it's like really sticking with me. So, yeah, I don't know what to say. Complex feelings complex feelings i'm glad you still talked about it though because i feel like this does happen frequently and like it's just like a good thing to explore with each other and to think about and like the author got like a million plus dollar deal selling this book and to me it's just like a little bit icky it just seems like the easy way out like you could have very well made the bad guys be a white guy who were angry about other things. Do you know? The bad guys in the book hostage, I never saw it coming, and I thought it was very smart. Yeah, this was very, it's like, unfortunately, a predictable route to take in a, a, mm-hmm. maybe in a post-9-11 world. And I, did, I just thought it was lazy. Also, like, honestly, Kurdish people probably do have a bone to pick with the Reagan totally. administration, so it's also weird when, like, 
American audiences pivot that as like the enemy because they're not unjustified in their like qualms against the right. And I think this so. author was trying to make that point, but like did it in a terrible way. <laughs> like, and I, and mm. like that is something that they talk about in the book. Like, it just, it just, it, yeah. I just, I want somebody else to read it with the mindset of. I mean, go into it however you want to go into it, but I would love to have a conversation with somebody who read this and let me know, like, if maybe you think I'm being dramatic or if you agree, like, I just want, let's talk, (laughs) DM me. (laughs) But in an effort to not continue to talk about this for the rest of the episode, um, that was Falling by TJ Newman. And Emily, what did you read? Okay, so I read Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova. And this came out in 2016, and it's actually part of a trilogy called the Brooklyn Brujas Trilogy. Yeah, and this came out in 2016. I did it over audiobook. I think it was a good format for this. And I'm mostly done with the trilogy. I have one more book. And so far, each book is quite different. Um, I would recommend starting here, but it's like one of those things where plot-wise... It's not a series, so you could pick up one of the others without doing the first one, although there's, like, events that happen in other books that are based on Labyrinth Loss. If you start here, you'll get the most world-building from the series. As we open on a group of sisters, uh, particularly Alejandra, who goes by Alex, and she's a bit of a late bloomer. She is part of a magical family and she's waiting her for her powers to come into action so they haven't like emerged yet and there's a ceremony that encases your powers and stabilizes them called your death day ceremony which is basically your like coming of age where all your ancestors and everyone that's part of your circle of people come together and they like celebrate you and stabilize your magic and Alex has this scheduled but her powers haven't emerged yet Uh, it gave me very like chilling adventures of Sabrina season one vibe but like Latinx Alex has two sisters who already got their powers so she's got an older sister Lula, who's like pretty and she's got healing powers. And then Rose is younger than her and she's kind of like what they call a dream walker. She can kind of like commune with the dead. Everyone is praying to the Deos, who are like the gods that supply the magic, um, for Alex's powers to emerge. And it was kind of a fun breakfast scene because it felt very like mundane. Like they were cooking ambrosia for the gods, for the Deos, but like. It was like, oh, my God, Alex, make sure that you, like, mix this. It was like they were cooking eggs, but it was ambrosia for the gods. And as they're getting ready for high school, Lula's boyfriend is, like, driving Alex and her to school. And they almost hit a pedestrian. Uh-oh. And uh, this gives Alex, like, whiplash. And then something kind of, like, shakes free in her brain because when she gets to school, she accidentally unleashes a snake on a classmate (laughs) oops so this kind of like shakes her powers free and her mother is proud to find out 
that Alex is actually an enchantrix, which is a flavor of magic that's like the most powerful because she can do physical manipulation. And Alex is a little torn on this because throughout her life, she's had some trauma involving the magic. Her father disappeared and she knows the toll that magic takes, like the responsibility that comes with the power. In this system, all magic has recoil. That is like the use of magic physically nauseates you or like incapacitates you, which I actually really liked. I was like, ooh, like you need time to recharge. I kind of like that. And she's kind of like debating the powers or like the responsibility that comes with being an enchantrix. And they only come around like once every so often. So she's really conflicted and she's gathering all those supplies for her death day, which was also a really fun scene because they're like going around Brooklyn, like picking stuff up for her party and like ordering cheese and guava pastries. And then I was like in Washington Heights and I got a cheese and guava pastry just so I could feel like Alex on my death day. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and she runs into a cute boy who happens to be the pedestrian they almost ran over. <laughs> and uh, Alex tells him she's nervous for the ceremony because she doesn't want all this power and responsibility. And he mentions a conto, which... I'll explain later that might banish her power, but it's a bit risky. And she's like, I mean, I just want to keep my family safe. I don't want to accidentally hurt them with all this magic responsibility. So um, at her death day, she's supposed to seal her magic in with like a blood spell that they practice. You know, there's a big deal. All your ancestors are there. Like they're dead. They're in the underworld and they're here to support you. And also everyone in the neighborhood, like it's a big to do. And uh, I pictured it as kind of like a quinceanera. Um, and she does the conto that's meant to protect her from her powers. And the deos kind of rebel by taking all her family away, both living and dead. And she's like, what do you uh -oh. what do you mean away? So they get sequestered kind of into the underworld. At first, she thinks they're gone for good. But we soon find out that there is a quest that she can go on um, into the underworld to combat the ethereal afterlife figures and rescue her family. So there are a couple things I really liked about this book. I really do love that the Mortiz sisters are like, they're tight and they have like a sister dynamic to them that feels very like young, but still really relatable. And her mom is like very friendly and there's just a lot of like family orientation to this that I thought was really cool and added something to like the, your traditional like witches, spells, quest type thing. And I should say the whole system is informed from like a Latinx tradition. So the way they explain it is, quote, spells are for witches and contos are for brujas. All brujas are witches, but not all witches are brujas. So... If that makes any sense, they explain it more in the book. And um, actually, each chapter of the book is prefaced by an excerpt from the Book of Contos, so like their book of spells. And um, I thought that was a cool little touch. It kind of reminded me of Once and Future Witches in that way. And once they get to the afterworld or the afterlife, it gets kind of, I've seen comparisons to Alice in Wonderland. I think it's mostly just like there are realms and you're kind of wandering through these spaces that don't make sense. 
there is romance but in a little bit of plot twist and yeah I really enjoyed it and like I said I like ended up picking up the other books in the series which are about the other sisters so Rose that and sounds Lula. fun I really liked it I like her writing style um and I was like tempted to buy buy the physical copies who am I even am I even the lazy library <laughs> anymore if I keep buying books that was called labyrinth lost oh and the last thing I wanted to say is we're kind of getting closer to spooky season and I think it's one of those good books that could bridge the barrier between summertime and time for witches it's always it's always witchy season you know this (laughs) yeah it just feels like a good um you know line up the series on your when you're starting to think more about I want magic in my life uh yeah so that's called labyrinth lost by Zoraida Cordova. Did you say how many stars? Oh, I really liked it. I gave it five stars. Nice. Uh, Kayla, what did you read? Okay, I read Where the Truth Lies by Anna Bailey. Thank you so much, Tia for sending this to me. Um, oh my God. Like, I don't even know where to begin with this book. And it's really, it's one of those that it's hard to talk about without giving too much away. And an important content warning, I'm not going to be talking about this, but... There is every type of abuse in this book and horrific homophobia. It gets super dark and I feel like I have a strong stomach for like dark and disturbing, but it was even hard for me to read at times. But as I wrote in my review, the enduring themes of love and acceptance do shine through in the end, which I think makes getting through all of the traumatic things kind of worth it. It's not just like super bleak. I got this book sent to me and I thought it was going to be a thriller. It's kind of like marketed as like a teenage girl disappears, but it is about this girl's disappearance. But that kind of is just like this thin plot line throughout the book that's pushing along everything else that's playing out. And there is literally so much happening in this book and it sounds confusing and it's going to be kind of confusing to explain, but I promise, like, just read it. So we're in a very small town in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. And the whole life in this town seems to center around religion and addiction, whether it's either drug or alcohol. And the town is like, the people in this town are very small-minded. It's extremely conservative. 17-year-old Abigail Brown has disappeared. You know right away that She was last seen by her best friend, Emma, going into the woods at night. And, you know, she was like meeting someone, but Emma didn't see who it was. Um, So there aren't really any leads at first. And the police are kind of quick to say that she ran away. She's from a very troubled family. And it's kind of just one of those cases that we unfortunately see all the time where they just assume the girl fled. But... They start finding more and more evidence. And as this all comes to light, it seems like all of the secrets in the town are kind of like reaching their boiling point and like everything comes out along with her disappearance. So we switched perspectives a lot. The book actually came with a character flowchart, which was super, super helpful because it showed you like her family and then her two best friends and their parents. And if you decide to pick this up, DM me, I'll send you a picture of it. Cause I kept like, I used it as a bookmark and I kept referring back to it. 
I'm just going to touch on like a few of the characters because there really are so many, but we have Emma who is Abigail's best friend and she is really struggling with Abigail's disappearance. And as all these new things come to light, she's starting to realize that maybe she didn't know Abigail as well as she did and that their friendship wasn't as strong as she thought it was. So she's kind of like dealing with that as well as her like wild concern for her friend. And she also is facing a ton of discrimination and racism in this town because she is half Mexican and she's being raised by her single mother who is white. And you know that her dad like just left one day and there's like allusions to him being like that he was run out of town, but you, Emma doesn't know any of that. So in the aftermath of Abiel's disappearance, she starts like drinking a lot and she befriends this boy who's new to town, he goes by Rat. He's originally from Romania, which I thought it was really interesting to throw like a Romanian character specifically into this like very white conservative town. Wait, what is his name? It, it's something long, but he goes by Rat. R A T. Rat, like Rat. The rodent. Like Rat. Yeah. Rodent. Wow. Okay. Okay. He so- has it. I don't, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his full name. I'll send you the character flow chart. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved him. He was one of my favorite characters. He's originally from Romania. Like I said, he moved around the world a lot and somehow ended up living in a trailer in this small town. He rides a motorcycle. He's like good looking. He's kind of dubbed as the bad boy. And we find out that he is gay and all of these things combined, the people in this town are like, who is this outsider? And they kind of start to blame him for all of these things that they see going wrong in the town, even though it's like all these ignorant, bigoted people's fault. So then there's also a lot of focus on Abigail's family or her dad is very troubled he is extremely abusive both physically and mentally and we see how each member of her family handles living with him so she has a younger brother named jude who knows something about his sister's disappearance but he's scared to come forward and tell the police and then her older brother noah is the dad's main target because he's gay and you know that he was supposed to leave the town and go to college in California, but something had something happened that made him stay. Noah and Rat are like seeing each other and their relationship becomes one of the main focuses in the town and honestly like kind of overshadows the fact that there's a missing presumed dead girl, especially by like the pastor and his wife and like the like super dedicated churchgoers. Okay, that's like, I feel like I said a lot, but that is just scratching the surface. There are so many twists in this book. It's brutal to read at times and things happen that are deeply upsetting. But these characters, like I loved Rat and Noah specifically so much and they were so strong. And I felt like their strength really shone through and kind of propelled me forward and wanted, I wanted to keep picking it up, even though it was very hard to read. I saw a review today describe it as claustrophobic and I've never used that word to describe a a book before, but I think it's a great way to describe it because so much happens. It's like you can't breathe and you feel like you're trapped in the town by the residents, even as you're reading the book, but you just like need to know what's happening. And obviously Abigail's disappearance like is solved and like that was like 
I kept reading it too because I was like, what happened to this girl? Like, why aren't the police paying enough attention to it? Like, you're suspecting everyone as all these other things are playing out. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I read it. And I am actually interviewing the author very soon. And I am so Mm. intrigued because so I read like the author bio after I finished it and she is British and she wrote this book. It's her debut, which is also wild. Like this writing was so stunning, but she wrote this book after living in a town similar to the one that is from this book for a year. So it's kind of like based on all these things she observed. So I'm so like, I can't wait to chat with her and pick her brain a bit more about what that was like. I gave it four stars because this is a slow burn, like character driven novel. And there's a point in the middle where I was like, where are we going? But the more I think about it, I'm like, I don't know why I didn't give it five stars. Like this is one of those stories that I feel like will just always stick with me. So it's like a four slash five. And yeah, I like, I really loved it. I like Rot and Noah, like I shipped them and I have like a special place for them in my heart forever. And that was Where the Truth Lies by Anna Bailey. That sounds intense. Both ears and Becky's. Sorry, people. So intense. <laughs> yeah, a little dark episode. Yeah. Well, sometimes you gotta talk about. Well, it. okay. Also, this author was born in 1995. Oh yeah. That is so. How can anyone even be that young? You know. <laughs> My sister yeah. was born and in it, and write like this. <laughs> like I was just blown away by this book. Honestly, it feels like kind of crazy to say. Not crazy, but it's like. It's very dark and it feels a little weird to say that I loved it, but like I loved the characters so much that like I loved this book. Kayla, what's up next for you? Can't oh no. Oh my god. What's on your TBR? <laughs> Are you even on this podcast anymore, Becky? <laughs> it was your idea to change it. <gasps> what is <laughs> on your TBR? What's your TBR looking like? Oh my God, it's huge and overflowing. Um, But at the top of it is Hairpin Bridge by Taylor Adams, the (gasps) author of No Exit. My dad just read that and liked it. Ooh, oh. I'm kind of saving it for a day when I have nothing to do because I read No Exit in a day and I feel like this might be same vibes. Um, Emily, what's on your TBR? Um, I would like to read The Inheritance of Arcadia Divina. That's also by Zoraida Cordova, the author I talked about today, but it's outside of her Brooklyn Brujas trilogy. And it just came out recently, I think. Uh, Becky? I'm going to read At Summer's End by Courtney Ellis, a kind of English manor 1920s. There's somebody on the cover in fringe. (laughs) Looking Looking away. Actually, not like the other direction, but like not straight on. So in the category. Yeah. Um, Libby, what are you going to grab from your TBR and read soon? Oh, my God. (laughs) At the top of my TBR right now is The Stars and the Blackness Between Them by Hunata Petras. Nice. And where are you on Instagram? Sleep, run, read, repeat. I'm at Becky in the bookshelves. I'm at the Lazy Library. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm at KRedWatt, and you can find all of us at Books in the City Pod. Make sure you're tagging us and using our hashtag MyBooksAndTheCity. Head to our website, BooksInTheCityPod.com, for merch. Check out Nicole's merch, Astoria Press. 
Follow us on Twitter at BATC Pod, like our Facebook page, Books in the City Podcast. Don't forget, we have Malibu Rising Zoom on Sunday, the 29th. And if you're still here, what's making you happy? Let us know. Aww. And thank you to our Carrie Level producers, Sissy, Riley Harrell, Carrie Kissinger, Brenna Collins, Amanda Borgia, Elizabeth Jamka, and Susie Southwick. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> <laughs>